0: Thank you, worship team. Thank you all for joining together in praise to our great God. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dirk Jaspers. I'm the new pastor here. This is only my second week in the pulpit, but it has been such a joy to be with you. And if I haven't met you yet, would love to meet you after the service. So introduce yourself. This morning, we are continuing a series in preparation for Holy Week focused on Jesus on who he is, the Messiah, our Savior and Lord, and what he has done, his death for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and his resurrection on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Last week we saw that Jesus predicted for his disciples that he was going to die, but that he would also be raised and that he would return in glory. As we saw last week, the disciples had trouble with this. Peter challenged Jesus. He said, No way, Jesus. That's not the way it's going to be. But Jesus taught them that his cross would come before a crown, that his death would come before life. This morning, we come to a second time in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus predicts his own death. And again, the second time, we see that the disciples don't really get it. What we're meant to see in this passage is that Jesus walked a path of humility that led to his greatness, and that we, if we would follow him, must also walk a path of humility. So would you please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Matthew chapter 17, verses 22 through chapter 18, and once you get there, would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read through chapter 18, verse 4. Beginning in chapter 17, verse 22. It says this As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to start off our time by asking us a question. What is greatness, and how do we achieve it? What is greatness, and how do we achieve it? Our world gives us lots of different pictures of what greatness looks like. We can think of world leaders who command the resources of superpowers and shape global politics. We can think of the CEO who's risen by his own bootstraps and has climbed the corporate ladder and now can sway markets with a single word. Or we can think of sports stars, who's the greatest baseball player of all time or the greatest basketball player of all time. It's usually the one who has a single-minded focus on winning, on defeating his opponents, the smartest, the fastest, the strongest. And our world tells us a story about how people get there, too, right? The picture of greatness is one of self-achievement and self-exaltation. And the way you get there is you climb your way to the top, even if you have to leave a few bodies in your way. It's a picture of greatness that involves climbing and striving and ascending. Think of the language we use, a superstar singer climbs the pop charts, right? Or... A political figure climbs from one office to the next, up and up and up. People jockey for position in the office or in uh, the town or or whatever the setting is. It's a picture of greatness that is achieved by lifting yourself up, by hook or by crook. And this picture of greatness is not unique to our day. The circumstances are new. They didn't have a stock market in Jesus' day. But the picture of greatness that we have today is not different from what it was in Jesus' day. Think of historical figures from that period. Alexander the Great, for example. Why was Alexander called Alexander the Great? Because he conquered everyone in front of him. He rose to a position of power and to prominence through his own might and strength. He lifted himself up. The same is true of the Roman emperors of Jesus' day, and many in our day. Yet while the world tells us a story about greatness as lifting oneself up, greatness as achieving for oneself a high position, Jesus, both through his example in life and through his teaching in this passage, shows us a different picture of greatness. Greatness that is not achieved through lifting oneself up, but through lowering oneself down. Greatness achieved not through jockeying with others for position or seeking one's own interest, but through seeking the interest of others. And as we'll see in our passage, this picture of greatness is deeply challenging, not just to the world around us, but to us as disciples. The first thing we see is that Jesus humbled himself. We see this in chapter 17, verses 22 through 23. There Jesus, as he did last week, predicts for his disciples that he was going to be delivered into the hands of men, verse 22, and then killed, verse 23. Jesus is walking a path that he knows will lead to his own death, and not just any old death, an excruciating death a humiliating death, a death on the cross, a death that was reserved for the lowest of the low. It was not a death that was given to the highest in society, to the great ones in the world's eyes. And Jesus is walking this path knowingly and willingly. We saw this last week, we see this this week. Jesus knew that it was only through going to the cross, that he would be able to save God's people from their sins, that he would be able to save us from the penalty of sin that we all deserved. And so he was humbling himself, literally lowering himself to a death on a cross. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes it using these same terms. He talks about how Jesus was the one who lived in heaven. He was the Son of God. The one through whom the world was made, and yet Jesus, Paul tells us, did not consider equality with the Father something to be grasped, but he lowered himself and made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh, and becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the one whom all the angels worshipped, took on human flesh, walked a path to the cross, and allowed himself to be crucified in the lowest place of society. Jesus walked a path that doesn't look like the path to greatness that our world shows us. Not a path where he was lifting himself up, but a path where he was lowering himself down. Jesus humbled himself for our sake, for our salvation. And yet this humbling of himself would lead to his glory. He didn't just die. He rose from the dead and he, the Son of Man, will return, ruling a great kingdom. So Jesus' path is one of greatness. It is one of glory. It is one of a kingship. But it is a path to glory that goes down before it goes up. A path to glory that involves humility and suffering And at the cross, humiliation. Jesus lowered himself to greatness, we might say. Now the disciples are disturbed by this idea. They don't understand it. We're told, verse 23, that they were greatly distressed. This could also be translated, they were grieved. We know from Mark and Luke's account of this same event that they did not understand You see, the disciples knew some things about Jesus. Jesus had been teaching that he was bringing in the kingdom of heaven, that he was bringing in a kingdom that would be marked by justice and righteousness. And the disciples knew, as Peter confessed in Matthew 16, that Jesus was the promised Messiah, that he was the one the prophets had spoken about in the Old Testament, who would come and who would rule and reign in righteousness. And so they knew that Jesus was going to be great, that Jesus was going to rule a kingdom. But they didn't understand that before Jesus would be exalted, he would first go down to a cross. They thought that by following Jesus, they were following him up and up and up, rather than down, 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 and then up. And we know this because of the way that they fight with each other in this story and the next time Jesus predicts his own death. And we see that they did not understand what humility looks like. Let's look at this in verses 24 through 18, verse 4. In chapter 18, verse 1, the disciples ask Jesus a question, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This is not an abstract question. They're not asking who's the holiest of all the Old Testament people. Who's the holiest in your church? Who's the greatest? They're asking what's the pecking order among us disciples? Who's going to be your right-hand man when you set up your kingdom, Jesus? This question, I believe, is spurred by the events of verses 24 through 27. It's this very strange story where this tax collector comes to Peter He asks Peter, Hey, does your leader, does your teacher Jesus pay this temple tax? That's what's being talked about in verse 24. This was a tax authorized in Exodus 30. You can read about it there. It was sort of like an offering that was used to pay for the temple. But it was an offering levied on faithful Jewish men. And Jesus tells Peter, when Peter comes and asks, He says, Actually, Peter, I'm God's son. And you're my followers, so you're God's son. And kings don't make their kids pay taxes, so we actually don't need to pay this tax. Interesting logic. He's not talking about our relationships with government. He's talking about God the Father and himself. And then he tells Peter, he's like, look, we don't have to pay this tax, but it's not a real big deal, and we don't want to cause problems where it's unnecessary. So what I want you to do for our tax payment, Peter is you're going to go to this lake and you're going to cast out your net and you're going to bring in a fish and in that fish's mouth that be our tax payment. So how would you like to have that be your, your method of reimbursing the IRS or giving your offering? Anyway, I, what, what happens there is that Jesus provides for his tax and Peter's tax. Look at the end of verse 27. He says, Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself but it's singular. It's for Jesus and Peter. Then in 18 verse 1, we read that at that time, so at the time of this fish incident, the disciples come to Jesus and ask, who's number one? Who's top dog in your kingdom? I think they're asking this because they they think Peter's getting some preferential treatment here. And so when they're asking who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, they're asking which one of us Is number one? What's the pecking order between us in your kingdom? When you, Jesus, come and set up shop and you begin to rule, when you set up your administration, which one of us is number one? And which one's number two? And which one's number three? Is it Peter? Or is it me? Is it James? Who of us gets the top spot in your kingdom? You see what's happening here? They're jockeying for position among themselves. Now, if we're honest, this doesn't just happen with the first disciples, right? Many of you have been part of churches, part of this church, and we know if we examine our hearts that sometimes the worst power struggles happen among Christians who are fighting and trying to gain for themselves glory or prestige. This is not the way that it should be in Jesus' kingdom. This is not the way it should be among Jesus' Disciples. Jesus was the one who did not seek his own glory first and foremost. He lowered himself to death on a cross on behalf of others. And so, if we are following him, it is improper for us to be seeking and striving for our own glory at the expense of others, especially at the expense of others in the church. And Jesus knows this is what's happening amongst his disciples, and he tells them exactly that. He says, You guys want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Well, let me show you. You must humble yourselves. We see this in verses 2 through 4. Jesus, having been asked, which one of us is the top dog, calls in a child. And he puts this child in the midst of them, verse 2, and then verse 3 said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, you guys want to know which one of you is number one in my kingdom? Well, unless you turn, unless you do a 180 and become like this child, you won't even get into the kingdom of heaven. See what he's saying there? Because unless you turn, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying we must humble ourselves if we would enter the kingdom of heaven. And furthermore, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who humbles themselves like a child. Jesus humbled himself and he humbled himself to greatness. We must humble ourselves if we would enter and if we would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean to humble oneself like a child? What it doesn't mean is that we need to go back to some sort of state of childlike innocence or, or ignorance. That's how we often think about children in our culture, that children are sort of these blank canvases that are innocent and beautiful and angelic, sort of. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying that we need to become like children in two ways, I believe. First, in dependence. Children in Jesus' day did not have power, they did not have agency, children couldn't wield influence, they were dependent on their parents, dependent on those around them. The disciples are seeking to jockey for power and influence and agency. That's what they're doing in verse 1, and Jesus says, unless you turn and become like a dependent child, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the only way that we will enter the kingdom of heaven is if we cast ourselves on God as dependent children. Those who know that the only way we can enter is through the work of Jesus. And those who know that all that we have and all that we are as Christians depends on what God has done for us and is doing in us. We must realize that we must become like children, dependent on God and trusting in him. Until we humble ourselves and do that, we will never enter. We will never enter the kingdom of heaven unless we put our trust and our faith and our hope in Jesus Christ. But there's something beyond just dependence here that Jesus wants us to see. He's saying you have to embrace dependence. You have to give up seeking power and influence and agency for yourself. But he also says you must embrace low status in the eyes of the world. Children in our day are highly valued, right? People will invest their lives in their children. They'll give up anything for their children. And children are, we pamper our kids, we, we love children in our culture. While children were loved in Jewish culture in that day, they weren't highly valued. Children were not highly esteemed. They were not glorified. People didn't go out of their way to spend time with children. In fact, there's religious Teachings by rabbis from around Jesus' time, where they advise their students, their pupils, don't spend time with children. It's a waste of time. That's essentially what they teach. They didn't teach me that at seminary, but that's what they taught back then, right? Like, you're, you have more important things to do than spend time with kids. Children aren't important. You don't need to worry about them. And it was even worse in the Greco Roman world around Jesus' day. Children were not well valued. Often parents, when they would have kids, if they didn't want the kid, they would leave them outside to die. Uh, They would expose their infants. That was a common practice. Children in the home had next to zero legal rights, very little status. You could do whatever you wanted with your child. And so when Jesus is saying you must humble yourself, literally in the Greek, lower yourself, like a child. It's from a word for leveling. He's saying you need to embrace low status in the eyes of the world. You guys are fighting to be number one in my kingdom because you expect it will bring you glory. But unless you turn and embrace becoming like a child, someone who people aren't going to value, someone who people aren't going to want to hang out with, someone who people aren't going to listen to and fawn after and follow around, unless you embrace that, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you want to be great, you have to humble yourself like a child. This is a very different picture than the picture our world gives us, isn't it? It's a very different picture than the picture the disciples were given in their culture at the time. But it fits with who Jesus is and what he had done. Jesus, the praise of all the angels in heaven, the one through whom the world was made, took on human flesh and dwelt with us. Jesus, the one who was worshipped and adored, went to a cross, the place reserved for criminals and slaves and the lowest in society. Jesus lowered himself to greatness and he calls his fellow disciples to embrace a similar low status in the world to give up striving for our own greatness and reputation in the eyes of the world and to follow him. Now, we might ask ourselves, well, that's all well and good to talk about in the abstract, but what does that really look like when push comes to shove? How do we do this? How do we embrace this humility that Jesus is talking about? Well, thankfully, I believe that Jesus gives us a picture in the remainder of Matthew 18, of what this can look like in practice, specifically what this can look like in our relationships with one another in his kingdom. So I want to spend the remainder of our time in Matthew 18 looking briefly at what this humility looks like in practice. We've seen that the disciples' problem is that they're fighting amongst themselves to try to become great, right? They are trying to make themselves great at the expense of one another. But Jesus is saying, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to humble yourself. If you want to be glorious, you need to make yourself low. And as we'll see in the rest of Matthew 18, in the community discourse, as it's called, this involves valuing one another, embracing one another, and it will show itself through embracing each other, protecting each other, and forgiving each other. Embracing each other, protecting each other, And forgiving each other. We see this first piece, we need to embrace each other in verse 5. Jesus, having just said, Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, then says verse 5, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Jesus says, Your reception, your embrace of one another shows whether you embrace me. Jesus is the one who humbled himself. And he says that if you want to follow me, you also must humble yourself. You must become like a child. And then in verse 5, he says that if you're going to embrace me, you're going to embrace my little ones, the ones who are following me. You can tell a lot about someone's priorities by who they spend time with. Those who seek their own status, if you want to climb the ladder in your job or in the office, who do you spend time with? Who do you network with? The people who can help you get ahead, right? People who can open doors for you. If you want to rise in your community or through the political ladder, who do you hold fundraisers for? Who do you hang out with? Do you hang out with the lowly, with the weak? No, you hang out with the people who have prestige and have power and can help you get ahead. In Jesus' day, if you wanted to become great, you didn't spend time with little children. That wasn't what you did. Friends, if we are following Jesus, it will show itself in who we spend time with. We will spend time with one another. We will spend time with Jesus' little ones, those who also are following him and giving up status and power in the world in order to be like him. So one of the first marks of Whether we truly are receiving Christ, whether we truly are embracing Christ, is whether we are willing to spend time with those in the community of Christ who the world doesn't embrace, who the world doesn't love. That is a mark of what it means to humble ourselves like Jesus. So as we look at our lives, if you take an inventory, if we look at our church, are we a church that embraces those Who are of low status. In Romans, Paul tells the Romans who are in the capital of the Roman Empire that they should associate with those of low position. It is a mark of Christian humility of following Jesus to embrace others who are humbling themselves in following Jesus. So we embrace each other, but we also protect each other. We see this in verses 5 through 20 there we see Jesus painting a picture of community life that involves considering one another and confronting one another in cases of sin. I want to make a case to you that that's actually a mark of humility, that it's a mark of valuing one another above ourselves. Why do I say that? Well, in verses 6 through 14, we read Jesus warning against putting stumbling blocks in each other's way. Verse 5 says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but, here's the opposite of that, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, literally whoever puts a stumbling block in front of one of these little ones, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Pretty serious, right? Right? He says, he then warns about temptations to sin, about stumbling blocks in 7 through 9. And then in verse 10, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. So he just said, don't put stumbling blocks in the way of my little ones, of those who believe in me. Don't despise little ones. You see, if we think little of one another, we are not going to consider one another. If we don't regard others as God regards them, if we don't value one another as God values them, we aren't going to think about them as we go about our life in the church. But Jesus makes clear in verses 10 through 14 that the Father loves the little ones and he cares what happens to them. And so if we are following him in humility, we also will value one another and consider How our actions affect them. Notice what he says in verses ten to fourteen. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, which in context is causing them to sin. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep, and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Jesus here is saying that though his followers are little in the eyes of the world, though they are little ones, they are great in God's sight, that their angels, Here Jesus seems to be suggesting that there are angels that advocate on behalf of believers to God, that their angels have a direct line to the king of the universe, right? He says, God values the little ones, your fellow believers, so much that you ought to value them as well. You should not despise them. The word for despise there means literally think little of them. Though they're thought little of by the world, you should not think little of one another. And God, Jesus says, values these little ones, and he's going to hear about it if you start doing things that cause them to stumble. In fact, verse 14, we see, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God does not want any of his children to perish, and therefore it's very serious if we are doing things in community that cause others to sin. Why shouldn't you put a stumbling block in the way of your brother or sister? Why would it be better for someone who puts a stumbling block in front of the little ones to be thrown into the depths of the sea with a millstone around their neck? Because God cares about his little ones and he cares about sin. And so when we go about our lives together, if we're seeking our own interests in making ourselves great, we're going to think little of each other and we're not going to consider how our actions or what we want affect one another. But if we are thinking highly of one another rather than thinking highly of ourselves, if we're viewing each other the way God views us, then we are not going to despise each other and we're going to consider each other in what we do. For example, if you know that a fellow believer struggles with gluttony, for example. You're not going to take them to an all-you-can-eat buffet, even though there's no sin in you going to the all-you-can-eat buffet. Or alcohol, for example. I don't think the scriptures teach that alcohol use in and of itself is a sin, That if you, but it does teach that drinking too much alcohol can lead you to sin if you get drunk. So even though you may not have an alcohol problem, if you know a fellow believer in your church struggles with that sin, You'll give up using alcohol around them for their sake, right? You won't do anything that could possibly cause them to trip and to stumble. That is the humble way of following Jesus, of protecting each other, right? You're valuing each other enough that you won't do anything that would cause harm to one another. Yet, the opposite of that is just saying, I care about myself, I think little of them, so I'm going to do whatever I want pursue what I want regardless of how it will affect my fellow believer. Do you see how humility is the key there in that situation? But it's not just protecting one another by avoiding tripping each other up. We also see that this value that God places on the little ones, his desire that none of us should perish, also is the reason why we confront each other in cases of sin. We read verse 15 through 20. So he's just talked about how this parable of the sheep and the shepherd. Verse 14, he says, It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And then he goes into instructions about confronting sin and church discipline. Read what he says. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone. Here's the key. Here's why you do this. Do you do this because... You want to get what's yours. You want them to apologize to you so you can be gratified. You want them to be uh, to kneel under before you know. You do this to gain your brother. Notice what he says. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. When we confront one another about sin, it is not because we ourselves have been offended, because we are seeking our own glory or to have some sort of satisfaction from someone who wronged us. No, the Father doesn't want any of the other little ones to perish. And so we shouldn't want someone who has sinned against us to perish. And so if someone wrongs you and you go and confront them about that sin, it's so that they won't perish. It's for their good. It's to gain them and gain the relationship back with them. So when we confront one another about sin which we should do if we care about one another, it should be done in humility, and it should be done in love for the good of the person who has sinned against us. And we do this because God values that person, and just as we wouldn't want to put any stumbling block in their way, we also don't want to see them stray from the path. So confronting others when they sin against us is something we should do. It is a way to humbly love one another, to consider one another above ourselves. But it also should be a check on us and on our hearts. When someone sins against us, are we confronting them because we've been hurt or we feel we've been wronged or we've been slighted? Or are we confronting them because we care and love them? Jesus says that God values the little ones. He does not want them to perish. We should value each other and not want each other to perish and therefore if we're humble we will value each other enough to have difficult conversations in cases of sin and if necessary to take it to the church and engage in church discipline but all of this is for the good of the sinning straying person not for our own own glory or our own benefit so we see that Jesus calls us to humble ourselves and this looks like embracing each other associating with each other, it looks like protecting each other, not tripping each other up, and also confronting each other in cases of sin. The last thing we see in verses 21 through 35, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but the last thing we see is that humble living together requires that we forgive each other. After Jesus teaches about this dealing with sin, about confronting your brother in order to gain him back, in order to forgive him and restore relationship, Peter comes up to him, verse 21, and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Peter says, Jesus, I see that you're teaching that when I'm sinned against, I need to go to my brother, I need to confront him, and I need to try to gain him back. But what if he just keeps sinning against me again and again and again and again? How many times do I have to forgive him? And Peter says as many as seven times. Here Peter is probably being generous. The rabbis in Peter's day taught that you had to forgive someone two or three times. And then you could say, you know what, they're unrepentant. I'm not going to deal with this anymore. Peter here says seven times, which was the number of completion in Hebrew thought. He's saying, do I have to forgive him seven times? Which to Peter seems like a lot. Like, I'm being really generous if I forgive him seven times, right? But Jesus says, Peter, there's no limit to how many times you must forgive your brother. How many times you must forgive a fellow little one. He says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Seven is the number of completeness in Hebrew thought. Ten is a number of completeness. So seven times ten is seventy. Seventy times seven, it's like completeness times completeness times completeness. Jesus is saying there's no limit, Peter, to how many times you must forgive your brother when they sin against you. It's not like after the 490th sin, then you can stop. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying there's no limit on how many times you must forgive your fellow brother. And then he explains it through an extensive story about how improper it is for one who has been forgiven by God to refuse forgiveness to others. The picture Jesus is painting is that true humility, humility that follows him, will lead to forgiveness being extended to one another. If we are seeking to make ourselves great, if we're seeking our own interests, if we're jockeying for position with each other, we are going to be very hesitant to extend forgiveness to those who hurt us or those who sin against us. But if we're humbly embracing low status, if we're humbly giving up seeking our own greatness and our own glory, we are going to be willing to value one another enough to forgive when we're wronged to forgive when we're sinned against. We will embrace each other, we'll fellowship with one another, we will protect each other, but we will also forgive each other when we are wronged. So these are just a few of the ways that this humility that Jesus calls for, this humbling ourselves like a child, should look in practice. And I would encourage us as a church to be doing these things, to be embracing each other, even if there's no benefit to be gained for ourselves, to be protecting each other, to be considering, if I do this, will it cause my brother or sister in the pew next to me to sin? If we are sinned against, to go to the person and confront that sin, and if they refuse to repent, taking the additional steps Jesus calls for. And then when we are sinned against, and when Our brother or sister confesses to us, extending forgiveness and welcoming each other back. This is what it looks like to live lives of humility, to be great in the kingdom of heaven. This is what greatness in God's eyes looks like. And it's much different than greatness in the eyes of the world. But all of this greatness, this practice of humility that we're called to pursue... We only pursue because we have the example of Jesus, right? That's where it all started. All of this rests on Jesus' humble work going to the cross and his glory. Why did Jesus lower himself to the cross? Why did he leave the glories of heaven and take on human flesh? It was to win a people for himself, to embrace us, to make us his own. Why did Jesus go the path down, down, down to the cross. It was to save us from our sins and to make us righteous, to take us away from the patterns of sinning to which we were enslaved and to make us his own, to keep us from perishing. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Why did he lower himself to the lowest place? It was so that we could be forgiven. And so since Jesus Embraced us, we embrace each other. Since Jesus died to save us from sin, we protect each other from sin. And since Jesus died to forgive us of our sins, we also will forgive one another. All of our life, all of our humility that we are to pursue, we can only pursue when we fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we do so, we will follow him on the path to humility, but we will also follow him on the path to greatness. He is our model, he is our example, but he is more than just a model. He is our savior, and he is our king. So let us follow him all the days of our lives and let that show itself in how we live with one another. Would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ the Son, who did not consider equality with you something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking on the very form of a slave. Thank you that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, but that you have exalted him to your right hand and that one day he will return. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to your glory, Father. Would you help us to honor one another, to love one another, and to pursue the greatness that you call us to? We need your help to do this. Would you work in us by your Holy Spirit? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.